Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we are going to do something that I don't think we've done since I've been here. We are going to preach a whole chapter. A whole chapter, I know. So, um, hang on. We're going to be going fast. All right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and our text this morning will be verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of those things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom all things and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol, being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak and defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, you have knowledge, who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble." Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle this text this morning. Father in heaven, again, I pray that you will use your word this morning to speak to us. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit would again be the teacher, that he would illuminate the truths of this word and apply it to people's lives. And so, Lord, I pray that nothing will hinder your word, I pray that whatever is said would be true and right, and whatever isn't will not be heard. And so protect your flock, build your flock, and build your church here today. And may you be glorified as we are more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. You've probably heard me tell this story of how the church leaders in Europe got together. And they gathered together and the hot topic of the day was the worldliness 
of the North American church. After all, the North American church was now attending movie theaters. They were, their women were wearing lipstick and nylons. And this grieved them and it grieved their heart that the church would be so worldly as to be participating in these worldly activities. And they were so grieved they began to weep and as they wept, their tears flowed down their cigars and into their beer. And what we understand as we start to see this is what? There are controversial issues in the life of the church. There are debatable issues and they're often seen from a different point of view. They're often seen from a different cultural point of view, a different spiritual understanding. And so we want to make, we understand then as we come to this passage that this is exactly what Paul is dealing with. There are doubtful areas, there are doubtful activities that are in church life. And there's always the debate, what is appropriate? What can a believer participate in? And these issues will often vary between culture and by generation. But Paul is going to address the principles by which we can deal with debatable issues. He's going to lay down for us, we should say, three governing principles that will help us to navigate these difficult situations. Because we know this, that more often than not, churches are divided not over doctrine, but over behavior. Over do- not over doctrine, but over behavior. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us just to see these three controlling principles that will help us navigate debatable issues so that we are honoring to God and that we do not have divisions within the church. Now, the first principle I want us simply to see is this. Love must be the goal of our knowledge. Love must be the goal of our knowledge. Now, first of all, we're going to see that Paul is going to state the particular problem that is taking place in Corinth. And of course, we're not going to have that problem here. But we want to recognize that we're going to take principles off this debatable issue from Corinth and apply them to ourselves. Now he says, concerning things sacrificed to idols. This word for things sacrificed to idols is literally one word in the Greek and it means idol offering. And what he's speaking of here is that there was food offerings or sacrifices symbolically presented in worship of a God in his temple, and they were given over to that deity. And so the issue in the Corinth church was, could you eat the food that was given to an idol and offered up to an idol? Now we remember that the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic, meaning they worshiped many gods. 
They had a God or a group of gods for every circumstance, need, and every activity of life. They had a virtual fiesta of gods. They had a God for war. Just in case you wanted to go to war, you could call on that war. You had a goddess of love. You could go to the goddess of love, the god of travel, a god of justice, and so on. Right? And so there would be a God for every occasion, for every desire that you had, and you would go and you would worship that God and try to get their favor. They were also polydemonistic, believing that there were many evil spirits. So you have the many gods and many evil spirits. They believe the air was filled with evil spirits of all sorts that were, were continually going around. And so those spirits, they thought, uh, we should say this. And so as they sacrificed foods, both of those two things came together. They came together. The fact that they had many gods and, many, and they thought there was many demons. And so it is believed that evil spirits were constantly trying to invade the human being. And so they were constantly trying to take you over. And the easiest way was to attach themselves to food and so when you ate them, they were in. Okay, we have a doubter back there. Right? So this is what, this is what they thought. They thought that the demons were going to come in, and the easiest way was to, to get into the food, and when you ate it, then the demon was in. So the only way a spirit could be removed from food was through it being sacrificed to a god. So you wanted to get, make sure that your food was clean. You gave it over to a god. So the sacrifice serves two purposes. It gains the favor of the God, and it gets the demon out of the food. A win-win. Now, they used to give idol offerings, and they were divided into three parts. The first part was simply a third of that offering was, was burned up in the offering. A third was given to the priest, and a third was given to the offerer. So if you, whether it was meat, whether it was food, whatever it was, whatever was brought, it was divided into those three categories. So you can imagine that um, there was a large number of offerings, and so if you're giving a third of that to a priest, what's going to happen? How much can he eat? You're either going to have really big priests or they're going to have to get rid of the food, right? And so they would now sell that excess food in the market to get rid of it. Now, it was highly prized, of course, because it was, it was cleansed by evil spirits. And so it was often purchased and it was sold in the market. And the meat was served to, to guests and at feasts because it was already clean. It was already had the spirits removed as such. And so it was highly valued. Now here, the eating of meat offered to idols, therefore, had the same two associations for Christians, especially for those who'd grown up in the religious community or atmosphere or who had been under that paganism. The meat was associated first with the pagan god who they rejected. And it was also associated with evil spirits and being contaminated. And so there was those two associations that a believer would ha have after coming out of that system. And so for some of the believers, it was almost, it was, it was almost impossible to divorce those ideas. 
And you can imagine it was also impossible for them not to come into contact with that meat and with Gentiles who would serve this meat to them. And so many of them refused to eat it because it brought back bad memories of their previous pagan lives. And so they simply did not want to eat it. They, didn't want to, they were afraid it would, they would revert to paganism, and so they wouldn't eat it. And so you can also see that for the Jews, this was a problem because the food would be doubly unclean because it was, it was by a, by, offered by a Gentile and to, to idols. It was unclean according to Jewish dietary law. And so they didn't want to eat it. And they didn't want to eat at a Gentile's house. And so you can start to see the problem of eating food. So there was one group that was totally bothered by this. And then we had the, the Libertines. We had those who weren't bothered at all. There was a set of Christian believers who understood that idols were just what? Idols. There, there, there was nothing to them. They knew that pagan deities didn't exist. Evil spirits didn't contaminate food. So what's the problem? They were mature, well-grounded in God's truth, and their consciences were clear. They could eat the meat. But Paul says, here's the problem, but guess what? We know that we all have knowledge. He says, you're eating, here's, here's, here's the issue, you're, the food sacrificed to idols. He says, we all have what? We know that we all have knowledge. Now, Paul, I think here is probably quoting the Corinthians, the mature, quote, mature Corinthians believers, the knowledgeable Christian believers who are saying, guess what? We know this. And it's, it's actually true. It's true in this fact. They, they understand that, that, that idols are nothing. That meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. That demons don't possess food. But it's egotistical at the same time. And it reflects a feeling of superiority. Now they're not saying that when they say that we know all things that they, they are omniscient. They're not saying that we know everything. But what they are saying is we have more than enough knowledge and understanding of God's word to know that pagan idols are not real. And food sacrifice to them is still what? Just food. So they're saying, we know this. They knew that food couldn't contaminate them spiritually. It had no effect on the spiritual lives. And so they felt totally free to eat whatever they wanted, no matter what others thought. And you can kind of see the pride that comes with just that statement, right? We, we know all things. We're good to go. We can eat. We're strong. We know, we know the truth. But Paul makes a corrective here. He says, but, but remember that knowledge makes arrogance. You've already kind of demonstrated it, but now he says it straight out. Knowledge for its own sake puffs up but love edifies. In other words, the ultimate goal of knowledge is love. Love, love is, is not, the ultimate goal here is, is to demonstrate it in love. 
And so he says, those believers were mature in their knowledge, but not mature in their love. Love edifies and builds up others. That edification is what they didn't have. These believers were strong in doctrine. They, they knew what scripture said, but they were weak in love. They were strong in self-love, but weak in brotherly love. Now, this is strange coming from Paul to some degree because Paul is the theologian, isn't he? He's the one who's, who's big on doctrine. He's the one who wants us to know scripture. And knowing the word of God is important, is extremely important. It's important to know the word of God because it's impossible to believe or obey what is not known. You can't, you can't do what God requires of you if you don't know what it is. But knowledge, even of God's word, is not sufficient. It's not enough in the Christian life. By itself, knowledge makes arrogance. To have love but no knowledge is unfortunate, but to have knowledge and no love is equally tragic. Now, that's probably something that we don't say a lot in this church, do we? <laughs> We're pretty big on doctrine. We're pretty big on truth, right? United, united in truth, united in doctrine. This is how we do it. And yet, having the doctrinal understanding or, or having the nuts and bolts isn't enough. One writer says, the truly well-rounded Christian thinks and acts in two ways, conceptually and relationally. Conceptually and relationally. In other words, first of all, we understand the truths, right? We go to the word of God, we study, this is what it says. We've come to a conclusion on the truth of it. And then relationally means how do we now relate that truth to life and to other people? And it's not enough just to know the truth. You actually have to live it and relate it to other people. And so we must apply that biblical truth to people and to ourselves. And like we said, many divisions in the church are caused by problems of behavior, not doctrine. And so he says, Here, here's what we need to do, recognize. That knowledge isn't enough. The goal of that knowledge is to be expressed in love to others. To lift them up. To make them better. Well, it's easy to be deceived about knowledge. He says in verse 2, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Now, this isn't saying that we can't know some things for sure. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that these people think that they've come to the point where they know enough, they don't need to learn anymore. In other words, they, they think they've got enough, enough handle of the situation that they know everything about it. And if you ever find yourself getting to that point, look at the Corinthians, right? They thought they didn't need to know anything more. They knew enough. And yet Paul says, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, you don't know everything. 
If you think you've come to the point where you have all knowledge, you're deceiving yourself. Someone has defined knowledge as the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. <laughs> right? And there does come a point where we need to recognize that we don't know it all. And just because we think and we're firm on what we do know, doesn't mean there might be something that we can't learn yet. But it's easy to be self-deceived and it's easy to believe that you've, you've, like, you've known this for years and you can get arrogant on it. And Paul says, be careful, because when you think you know, you really are demonstrating that what you don't know. And again, this is not saying that we cannot be firm on what we know and that we can't know things for certain. But what he says, there, we need to be careful when there's an arrogance that comes in and a recognition that there, we are always learning and there's always more truth and deeper parts of that truth to learn often, especially when it comes to things around us and the behavior of others. Always something to learn. And then really in verse 3, he, he gives us, we could say, the test of whether love has been your goal. Here's how you know if love has been your goal. Is knowledge your goal or is love your goal? Well, he tells us here in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Pretty simple. It's pretty simple. Is the knowledge that you are gaining and the understand, spiritual understanding you are gaining causing you to love God? The more you learn, do the more you love God? Or do you simply know more truth and then go around using that as a battering ram on people or become arrogant with it? And he says, listen, here's, here's the test. Knowledge isn't about knowledge. Knowledge is about what? Love. And it's about loving who? God. And he says he is known by him. In other words, when God says those who are born of him love, God knows those are his and he knows those who love him. And you're known by him. And Paul really simply, in essence, is saying here, listen, if you love God, he knows you. And if you love God, the natural consequence of knowing and loving God is that love will, for God will overflow to the people around you. It cannot stop. Because true love for God always trickles down. And this is why we always start with love of God. You want to love your neighbor? Don't start loving your neighbor. Start loving God and, and that love will come right? You got marriage problems? Start, don't love your spouse. Love who? God. And when you love God, the love for your spouse will come. Fact is, you will never love them properly until you love God first. And so he says here, here's the acid test. Is the knowledge that you have driving you towards God? Is it causing you to love and therefore love others. And so he says, when you come to controversial issues, 
and you think you have the knowledge, is your knowledge governed by love? Is, it, is that the goal? Are you, is this is why you're learning? Is that knowledge driving you to God? Or is it driving you to, to create divisions and to run over your brothers and sisters? And so he says, here's that first controlling pr principle. Let love for God and by, by nature, the overflow of love for a brethren be the goal of your knowledge. Learn to know God. Learn so that you might love your brethren properly. We read this this morning. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. And so love sets limits on our Christian liberty. Well, he gives us a second principle. He says, not only does knowledge to be the goal of love, I mean, knowledge, the, the end of knowledge is love. But he says, knowledge lays the foundation for the application of the biblical principles in love. That's a long point. But simply put, we need knowledge in order to, to apply the principle of love. In other words, love is not just some feeling that's set out there. Love also has to be informed by knowledge. It has to be informed by knowledge. He says, therefore, concerning eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that no, there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So again, Paul agrees with those, quote, knowledgeable believers, those libertines, those who figure that they can eat this meat. And he agrees that, with the fact that what? That idols are nothing. It's only a piece of wood, stone, and the gods of these idols represent Idols represented are what? Just a hoax. It's only a reflection of their imagination, of the one to design it, or the impersonation of a demon who does work through that image. It's mere superstition. And then he says, there is only one God, and he is eternal, not made of hands. Paul would concur with the stronger brethren that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So one does not have liberty to partake. So one does have liberty to partake in this meat offered to idols. And so he says, there's no such thing as an idol. There's only one God. And again, he goes back to the Jewish Shema, right? There is what? Behold, Israel, your God is what? One. There is one God, one true God. There is only one God. There aren't multiple gods. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. In other words, Paul acknowledges there are what? Idols out there. Definitely there are idols out there. There are those, that, there are those who are worshiping them. And whether they're demonic or whether they're just simply an empty idol, he says, indeed, they're there. People are worshiping them. And even though the Corinthians, as they saw the beautiful sculptures of the goddesses in their temples, they didn't exist. 
So no matter how much they worshiped them, no matter what they were doing, they were not real. And so he says, yet for us, for us as believers, for those who have understood, there is but what? One God. There is only one God. The one true God. And he says, the Father from whom all things, whom all, are all things and we exist for him. In other words, the Father, he says, notice this, he calls him what? The Father. Now what a contrast to the impersonal deities the Corinthians had worshipped as pagans. Right? They could have no intimate relation with them. In fact, they dreaded and feared their gods. Their gods weren't personal. They were to be feared. But the Christians call him, call God what? Their father. This God is the originator of all things. Paganism had a God to create the sea, another God to create the earth, another the sky, another created the sun and the moon. There was again a God for everything. But for the believer, he recognizes what? God created all things from all things and we exist for him. In other words, we, we, we were created, right? All things were created, what? For God's glory. We exist for his glory. And as believers, we've been chosen in the past to live and to be his for, etern for eternity and for his glory. And he says, we, what? All things are exist. God created the earth. He created everything. Everything that is, he created. We exist for him. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things whom are all things and we exist through him. Now we remember Jesus Christ was what? The creator, right? He is the one who created the world. God gave him that. And so we are created through all things are created and exist through him. He is the one who makes all things exist. And so he is Lord. He is the one who we live for. And so he says to us, listen, you need to understand that there is only one God. We need to actually inform our love. In other words, we don't just love, but we inform it with truth. And so for those who are struggling, guess what? There is one God. Idols are nothing. And so ultimately, we know that our love needs to be what? Harnessed to truth as well. Harnessed to truth. And so there's a call for us to understand what the truth is and to start to live our lives in obedience to what is true. Well, Paul gives us one more controlling principle, and that's simply this sensitivity in our application of love and truth sensitivity in our application of love and truth he says in verse 7 however not all men have this knowledge but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled 
So he says, guess what? Believers actually vary in their knowledge. You need to understand this. As you live your Christian life and as you, as you live out your Christian freedoms, you need to recognize that not all believers have the same knowledge. He says, in this particular case, some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think it is as it being sacrificed to an idol. Not every Christian has the knowledge that meat offered to idols is nothing. Some simply have not been taught. Some simply have not actually had these things explained to them. And some have had them explained to them, but they can't make that theological and practical distinction between meat and idolatry. In other words, there takes time to process the truth, right? It takes time for us to process the truth. I mean, I would love it as a pastor if everything that I said out of the word of God, not just what I have to say, but what the word of God, if people just said, amen, let's go, right? But when we, have, when we think about some issues in our lives, we realize that we have been thinking for years in one direction. And then when we're confronted by the word of truth, we don't just go, okay, let's change, right? It takes us time for the Holy Spirit to convince us of that truth and to work in our lives until we are convinced of the truth of the word of God. And so we need to recognize that that is exactly what takes place in these issues. Not everyone has that knowledge. Not everybody's able to theologically work it through and then be convinced by the Holy Spirit. He says, until now they eat food as if it was sacrificed to an idol. In other words, they've been eating this food, convinced it's been sacrificed to an idol and feeling guilty, and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, they have violated their conscience. They have gone against that weak conscience, okay? So what is a weak conscience? When we talk about a weak conscience, what is a weak conscience? Well, a biblically strong conscience is one that is what? Tuned to the word of God, to the truth of the word of God, convinced of the word of God, and therefore lives it out. But oftentimes our, weak, our conscience are weak because we don't understand the truth of the word of God. We may not have been exposed to it. We've been maybe exposed to standards in the world, in our culture, different, different teachings that have convinced us of certain things. And so he says, at that point then, we need to what? Obey the conscience. Obey the conscience, why? It's weak, but scripture tells us everything that is what? It says, Romans 14, 23, but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eating not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is what? Sin. And so he says, we need to make sure that we are not what? Pushing people to what? Do things against their conscience. Because when we violate that conscience, even if the conscience is not done to the God's standard, we ultimately are what? Sinning. And it causes people to sin. And when we violate our conscience, it brings confusion, resentments, and feelings of guilt. And so in that person's mind, he has committed sin, even though morally we would say, no, you haven't. Until he fully understands the act is not sin in God's eyes, he should have no part of it. 
So the rule for the weak brother is when in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. A questionable practice which cannot be done by a Christian with a clear conscience should, be, should not be practiced because it will cause the brother to sin, defiling his conscience. In other words, he will be, feel guilty. And so he says, here's, here's what's going on. There are those who are eating who don't, who don't understand that they can eat it and they are defiling their consciences. They don't have that knowledge. He says in verse 8, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither worse if we do not eat nor better if we do eat. So he says, this doesn't commend us to God. This doesn't bring us to God. This doesn't make us more spiritual. There's nothing in food itself that is spiritual. Now we do eat a lot together, but that's not, that's not a spiritual experience, the eating of the food. But the idea is this, right? There's nothing inherently spiritual about the food you eat. There's nothing spiritual about the way you eat or, or the things you eat. So being a vegetarian is not a spiritual higher state or a vegan. Though I'm wondering if eating meat actually is. But that's just a personal preference, right? <laughs> but there's nothing in the food, right? Now, there's a problem if we eat too much food, and there's a problem if, if we eat stuff that's harmful for our bodies, right? You're not going to eat poison, or if you're allergic to something, please don't eat it. But ultimately, what we eat isn't a spiritual issue. And so there might have been a part of this congregation that was going like, we... Uh, <laughs> we can eat meat we can eat meat it's because we're spiritual we're, we're just a little bit above the rest right it's the unspiritual who can't eat the meat and God says actually guess what e eating, eating it doesn't make you spiritual it doesn't commend you to God it doesn't make you better in his sight eating food is really a neutral Activity doesn't bring us near to God. Jesus made that plain. He said, There's nothing outside a man which going into him can defile him, but things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Mark seven fifteen. Right? The Lord commanded Peter to eat. To kill and eat was both figurative, referring to accepting Gentiles, and, refer, liter, and literally referring to eating food previously considered ceremonially unclean. And so he says, there's nothing to commend you by what you eat to God. That doesn't make you spiritual. It doesn't make you spiritual if you, if you don't. 
right? There could be those who say, well, I'm more spiritual because I'm just more sensitive. Actually, my, my standard's higher than yours, and therefore I can, I can be more spiritual. He says, that doesn't do anything for you. But the problem becomes is when we stumble a brother, when we use our liberty and bring others down. And again, he speaks in verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Be careful how you exercise that freedom. In other words, the stumbling block has the, is, is, the, is something that someone stumbles over to fall. And the idea is that you cause a weaker brother to what? Sin. Putting an, ox, an, an obstacle in their way to hinder their spiritual growth. And so he says, don't let your liberty somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, recognizing he's saying they're weak, right? And he says, you, you as the mature believer are to be the one who demonstrates my, my maturity by what? Accommodating what? The weak when it comes to these questionable issues. So that your behavior, your liberty doesn't become that stumbling block that causes your brother to sin. And he says, don't do that doubtful thing so that you do not bring them down. And then he says, because what was a non-moral issue can become a sin issue. What was a non-moral issue becomes a sin issue. In other words, what you were participating in is actually what allowed by God, but it also can become what? A sin. Because you've caused someone to stumble. So he says, for if someone sees you, who have knowledge dining at an idol's table will not his conscience if he is weak be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols he says here's how that stumbling block comes now it appears that some of these believers these quote knowledgeable believers were so knowledgeable and felt so comfortable with eating meat that they thought it was okay to actually go to the pagan temples and eat some of the food there now, whether they were actually going to accommodate their families and going to a festival or going to a wedding, we're not sure. But the idea is they were, they were bold enough to even be seen eating in the temple. And Paul says, be careful what you do because there are weak believers and we know that this is a hot button issue in Corinth. This isn't, this isn't like, oh, surprise, I didn't know anybody was struggling with this. This is a major issue that everyone's talking about. Every, all the churches come out of paganism. This is an issue that's a frontline, front burner issue. And he says, you're in their dining. And he says, a weak brother is going to see you, someone who doesn't think he should be, and he's going to be strengthened to eat the thing sacrificed to idols. In other words, he's going to be emboldened. And he's going to say, well, if Johnny can do it, then I should be able to do it. And now he's going to go eat, and what? He's going to feel guilty. And he's going to violate his conscience because he's been emboldened to the point where he t eats it, and then after he eats it, he's what? 
feeling guilty. He says, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whom Christ died. In other words, you have brought your, your weak brother to what? To sin. You've caused him to sin. You've brought him spiritually down because of your stance, your insistence on exercising your freedom because of your knowledge. You know the truth. You have the right to do it. But you end up wreaking havoc on your brother. And maybe that weak brother goes back and starts to eat meat against his conscience. Maybe even goes back into idolatry. Idolatrous habits, bringing disgrace on Christian testimony. Whatever that is. The stronger brother has influenced the weaker brother to do something his conscience could not handle. And the obvious result is what? Spiritual disaster. Then he says, and so by sinning against the brethren, in other words, get this straight. When you use your liberty and you cause your brother to, to go against his conscience, you are what? Sinning against your brother. Like if you weren't clear, this is clear now. You're sinning against your brother. Wow. Who knew that doing something that's not morally wrong can actually be sin. And yet Paul says very clearly, it can be. It can be. When you use your liberty to do what you feel you're free to do, and you cause your brother to stumble, you're sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience. In other words, you have caused their conscience to what? To feel guilty. You've caused them to go against it and now their conscience is convicting them and calling them out and telling them that they've done something wrong, that they've sinned. And you've done it when they're weak. You're picking on the weak. You're causing the weak to stumble. And he says, when you do that, guess what? You're not just sinning against your brother. This brother for whom Christ died for, who you should love as Christ loves, but he says you sin against Christ himself. That brother has been a blood-bought believer who is a child of the Lord Jesus Christ for whom Christ died, who has promised to conform him to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, by doing that, you are sinning against Christ himself. Ouch. Jesus said, listen, it's better for someone to hang a millstone around his neck and be drowned in the sea than to harm or offend one of these little ones that belong to me. Okay? He's not, not talking about children there. He's talking about believers. Be careful. Don't beat up on your brother. Don't wound him. Love one another. How? By limiting our liberty for the sake of each other. And so Paul really sums it up in verse 13. And he says, liberty must be restrained to protect our fellow believer. 
Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So Paul restates this principle and he says, here, I'll be the example and I'll tell you what I'll be like. This is how willing I am to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and make sure that everything is done for his glory and that I would never cause my brother to stumble. I will never meet eat, eat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. I would rather go the rest of my life without meat than to cause another believer to sin. I have the freedom to. God has clearly laid that out. I mean, he had a spectacular display to Peter, right? He's laid all that aside and he said, yeah, but I would rather give that up than cause one believer to stumble, one believer to sin because of my freedom. And so Paul really says this, the position of the strong, mature believer who has knowledge, who's actually loving is, when in doubt, don't do it. In other words, when if you think for a moment that what you will do will cause another to stumble, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And you know what? You're going to find there's not those... There's just not that many of these areas that's going to cause your life to be turned upside down. And sometimes we spend all of our time fighting for liberty in areas that are just mundane and useless. Right? We, we can see this so often, I mean, even within the church, right? We might not have food offered to idols but we do have believers who are who are saved later in life who've been involved in alcohol and drugs and they come to Christ and they won't touch it with a 10 foot pole right and we say but I have the right as a believer I, I can drink alcohol that doesn't forbid it it just tells me not to get drunk right and we demand our freedom And we make, we make a big stink and we're, we're willing to do it. And we, don't, we say, well, they need to get their conscience right with God. They need to mature. And Paul says, actually, no, it's the other way around. You need to wait for them. And then you'll, you'll go look you, after all that big fight and you look on your calendar and you recognize, really, you've been having two glasses of wine on vacation for the last 10 years. And now you've made this huge issue over something that's really just a side issue in your life and sometimes we can be so caught up in fighting for our for our liberties that we forget to actually stand up and do what's right for Christ and for his bodies and for others we're so self-focused rather than other focused and Paul just says we need to adopt this attitude right be sensitive to others apply our love and sensitivity to brothers to the weak brother be willing to give this stuff up. Be willing to lay down our rights for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the betterment of his body. And so he says, remember these principles. Remember these controlling principles, right? Your knowledge needs to be what? It needs to be the end goal of love, of your knowledge, right? In other words, 
Love, knowledge should create love for God and for others. Remember that knowledge, that love needs to be informed by knowledge. And then let us be sensitive in our application of knowledge and love for others. Understanding that we may have to give up our liberty for the sake of others. So this morning, when it comes to controversial issues, are we willing to put these principles in practice? Are we willing to give up our liberty and uh, so that others may continue to walk and not sin before Christ? That's what love does. That's what the mature believer does. He's willing to give up his rights in order to help other believers grow spiritually and not to stumble them. And if we are a church who is known by this and who applies these things, then we will be a church that demonstrates God's love to one another. Ultimately, love is what descri should describe us our dealings with one another. Let us be those who don't use knowledge as a battering ram, but let us love one another as we are commanded to. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this text. And I pray that you would give us a heart to be obedient to your word. And Lord, we desire to be mature believers. So I pray that you would help us not to just grow into knowledge, but to grow in love for God and for one another. Give us wisdom as we relate to one another and let us be willing to give up our liberties for the spiritual well-being of our brothers. Heavenly Father, we thank you for placing us in the local church. And I pray that you would build Bowmanville Baptist Church up in love as we demonstrate our willingness to do what is best for one another that we might grow in you. I pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.